ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospels will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Invites you to be seated. Jesus asks one of his most important questions, although it seems simple, the question he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him quickly, you are the Messiah. And he names him correctly. But there's more than here than identifying Jesus as the Messiah or naming him as such. Behind that question really is a larger question about how Jesus fits into this unfolding drama of God's kingdom entering into the world. And so I want to begin by asking us today, those of us who call Christ our Savior and Messiah and the Christ, if you will, what end do you have in mind for the coming of the fullness of God's kingdom? What ending do you have in mind for the coming of the fullness of God's kingdom? And how do you see us getting there? What's that path look like to you? You see, Peter grew up knowing that story. Peter knew how to answer that question, and so do we, perhaps. But for Peter, he had a very specific ending in mind. And that ending, in great summary, sounds a little bit like this. And one day there will be an incredible victory, and God's kingdom will be restored in Jerusalem. Now, this was the ending that Peter had in mind, and he didn't concoct this on his own. This wasn't his creative mind at work. He had been taught this. He grew up hearing the stories how God's kingdom is unfolding and this victorious military that, will be, that would rise up and once and for all make Jerusalem the world's home and God's kingdom in its fullness. But today we see that Jesus has a different path and a different ending in mind than Peter does. Jesus' ending to this story is different than Peter's. 
This is an ancient story of God's kingdom, and this extraordinary victory had been written and told by people who had at times lived in exile, who had been apart from God and, and thought this story had no chance to come into fruition at times except for those who kept their lamps full of oil and, and trusted that this kingdom would unfold. Now in this time that this text is telling this story, Jerusalem has not fallen. Jerusalem is well in hand. They're not in exile, but they are being pressed down upon by Rome and they long for better days. They hoped for the days when they were, longer, were no longer pressed under such powers of the world, as had been the case with Egypt or Syria and now Rome. Their story was about having a permanent home, a permanent place to worship Adonai and the Holy One, a place high on a hill where all the world would come flowing to God's greatness and goodness and living in peace. And the person, our persons who had historically led them were messiahs and the prophets. And many times they embodied the best of God's leaders, such as David or Isaiah, the city of Jerusalem. And this vision of the kingdom had been won and it had been lost a few times now. But then the birth of Jesus came about. And this story uh, sparked a new hope. It, it sparked a new fervor. And the tensions were high and the hopes were high for a Messiah. And, and Peter expresses that. It, they had been renewed. But then when Christ came, he came and he has these different ideas about what it means to be the Messiah, what it means to be a Savior. And it challenged folks. And Peter's response is understandable because death on a cross, well, that's not part of the story that he knew. That sounded like a defeat. Defeat was not an option. And this is why he rebukes Jesus off to the side. This didn't fit well for the story. I'm glad to know that he took Jesus off to the side because he tried to save face here for himself and Jesus before he was called the devil. Shaming those we love is one of the hardest things that we can do. And even so, this side conversation gets printed so he didn't escape the shaming of this moment and the harshness of Jesus' rebuke. We have it to read today. And it's a stinging scene because Peter is one of the first to join Jesus. He's one of the most fervent and strongest followers that he has. He was even renamed from Simon to Peter because somehow he was different. He was important. Jesus obviously valued him and loved him. But he was prone to speaking or doing without thinking at times, at least thinking things through. He obviously wants to protect and he has the well-being of Jesus in mind, yes, but that's not his worry here. Peter's trying to preserve the story as he understands it. He's trying to preserve the ending of this story. He didn't want Jesus to be yet another failed Messiah. He wanted Jesus to accept and to use the powers of the greatness that he had displayed all along the way with feeding 5,000 and healing and, and walking on water and, and doing amazing things. He had the powers and Peter is essentially saying, use them. You're the son of the living God. Use your powers. Now this might sound familiar if you're familiar with Jesus' temptation story, right? That was the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus, just use your powers. 
Bring this thing into closing. You can do this all on your own. Jesus was the Messiah, and Peter wants him to act like it. Hence, the word Jesus is, that Jesus has used towards Peter. Now, the question for you and me today is what kind of Messiah we see Jesus as. Do we want this kind of Messiah? Do we want the Messiah that Peter hoped for but disappoints? Now, I bet Peter was a tough guy. I bet he was a strong guy. There's a tradition that says that, in part, that Jesus was renamed the rock because of his physical and his strong stature. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but I can imagine hauling fishing nets made him pretty strong, and I bet his hands were hard as a rock. So this rock means to convey that he was unmovable, perhaps. But he was also unmovable in his faith. He also held firm to what he thought was right and good, and he stuck with his guns, and that's kind of who he was, and, and Jesus seemed to value that in him. But this willingness to not be moved could get him in trouble. There was one instance where you know, looking and being the tough guy didn't work so well. In one instance, he, he tried to walk on water because he saw Jesus do it, and he thought he could, and well, he eventually sank because of a lack of faith, and, and today he thinks he knows better than Jesus. And he sinks in a different way today. I think we value the Peters in this world. We value that which is bigger and more powerful. And we see that as an asset or as a strength. Weakness is not something we often celebrate in this world, right? We even talk about faith in strong terms. We can say that this person or that person is a strong Christian. But do we do so by measuring them to weaker Christians? What's our measure there, what a strong Christian is? We value strong historical leaders who, like Winston Churchill, who through World War II said it would be through blood, sweat, toil, and tears that we would win this war. I grew up being told and buying into the fact, well, if, if I get a cut or a scrape, rub some dirt on it, it'll be Okay. But considering Jesus and his teachings, doesn't this way of things, seeing things, doesn't that seem contradictory at times to who Jesus was and his teachings? Are we any less inclined to think that following Jesus will bring power and glory for us instead of suffering and sacrifice and seeing such things as weaknesses? How often do we have Peter's expectations that Jesus will defeat those powers that want to tear us down? And when we do, at least today, Jesus begins to tell a different story. He begins to talk of rejection and he talks of suffering and this willingness to nonviolently face those who would kill him and, and mock him. He talks of things like turning cheeks instead of raising fists to those who attack us. He talks about washing dirty feet, and he tells us, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to have a, a roof over your head or a place to lay your head at night. And all of these things, he's also asking us today and, and reminding us that if you're going to follow me, that you must also carry the cross. Now, that cross looked shameful 
to the world. It looked a bit shameful to tough Peter this day. He couldn't accept it. We're asked today to even lose our power, to lose our lives for the sake of others. And in, in order to find the life that we're really called to. So will we, as, as Peter, be ashamed of this call? Or will we embrace it? At the end of the day, this sense of shame that Peter has for Jesus seems to be what was most hurtful. There are few things in life to know that those who love us are ashamed of the life that we've chosen. And that must have been what Jesus was feeling here. In this world where strength and might and victory and rewards are, are valued above other things, this story invites us to rethink everything. That consider that there may be a different way, there may be a different ending to the fullness of God's kingdom than we have considered. See, this title, Messiah in Christ, for you and me, it's synonymous with struggle and sacrifice and even a public execution. To be Christ was not a title of the world, it was a heavenly, it was, a, it was an otherworldly power. And this triumph, this, this ability to be sacrificial, well, we call that good news somehow. We call it the gospel. And it's a hard lesson today. This is not one of those passages that will, will sound anything like a self-help. It won't, it won't help us this week to overcome the mundane challenges we face. It, it won't solve the world's problems. No, today's passage is about commitment. And it's an invitation. And it demands from us a decision if we will follow Christ. Will we follow Christ to the places that he goes? Will we risk looking weak? Will we risk, look, risk looking shameful in the world for the sake of the gospel and others? That's the basic question. No, we cannot follow Jesus to Calvary. That was his cross to bear. and No one could bear it for him. But we are asked where we are to find our Calvaries in the world. Where is it that if we follow Jesus today, we might face shame and sacrifice because of who we stand for and who we stand with? It really matters what kind of Messiah we think we follow, doesn't it, really? If we think Jesus is the, is the power that overthrows all the world powers, bringing them down, that only leads us to one direction, and it comes with a high human toll. But we're called to be people of peace. If we think the Messiah is untouchable and distant and out there somewhere, then we can only put distance between one another. We're called to welcome all who seek to know the love of Christ. If we think the Messiah is above hardships and cannot be destroyed and cannot be hurt, well, disciples can only escape and find comfort. But we're called to endure we are people of the same story that Peter grew up hearing. We're still people who are ushering in the kingdom of God in our world where we are all reconciled with one another. And the ending we have in that story truly matters as well. At the end of our days, when our story is told, what will our lives reveal? What kind of disciple will we have chosen to be? And will it be choosing the path that Christ asks us to follow today.
We may know how we want to get to the end. And the way towards that reconciling community matters. This week I've wanted to read words from the martyrs of faith over all the centuries and, and decades. And as I read their words, so much of what they say in expressing their lives and deaths echo this passage today. Their words sound familiar, and they remind me of both the danger and the hope that we have in Christ, and expectations of bearing the cross. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was one of those martyrs of faith. He was a German pastor and theologian who, and a resistor during World War II to Nazi Germany. He, he was a founding member of the Confessing Church, and his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is still widely read these days, and it's an important read. I encourage you to do so if you have not. But his resistance, which included assassination attempt on his part, led to his arrest and hasty execution in 1945 as the war drew to an end. Initially, he came to the United States to escape the, the danger and the obvious harm uh, that he could have been under and was eventually. But he left behind friends and family. So he went back, and he said the reason he went back is I must live through this difficult period with the people of Germany. I have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life at home after the war if I don't share in the trials that my people are facing. His work is so influential because he reflected a lot on the sacrifice of Christ and that we're all called to. And this is what he had in mind when he was living among those who were his enemies. He wrote this, Jesus lived in the midst of his enemies. And at the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. And for this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs in the seclusion, and does not belong in the, in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of the foes. There were those who wanted him to take another path, but this was the path he chose because he knew that he had been invited to do so, and he must. He said those who love their dream of the Christian community more than they love the community itself can become destroyers. Now, it's important to note that the martyrs, like him, they did not lose their life because of the mere title Christian. They didn't lose their life because they were Christian. They lost their lives and they sacrificed their lives because in the name of Christ, they saved lives. They sacrificed in order to bring peace where there was violence and war. They offered balms of healing where there was sickness and suffering. And they knew that their citizenship was not of this earth, but firmly in the kingdom of God. But while in this earth, they lived as the conscience of Christ and this community to the world. He wrote that Christianity stands or falls with his revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and the pride of power. There's one more martyr I want to read from you of his last words. And forgive my French, it, it does not exist. <laughs> but Dom Christian de Sergey, I totally butchered that, I know. But he was one of seven Trappist monks who was killed by extremists in the monastery of Notre Dame in Algeria in 1996. His work had been to bring together communities of Christians and Muslims and create a healthy dialogue, and he was very successful. But he's lost his life to extremists. 
But in preparation for the worst that could come, and he knew it was likely, he wrote a letter that he said, if I die, I invite you to open this and read it. And it was read on Pentecost in 1996. And his words and meditations on suffering and death sound this way. He said, if it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of terrorism, which now ready to engulf all who live here, I would like my community, my church, and my family to remember that I gave my life to God and to this country. I ask you to accept the fact that the one master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I should like, when the time comes, to have a moment of spiritual clarity, which allows me to beg forgiveness of God and my fellow human beings, but at the same time, forgive with all my heart those who would strike me down. Those are the words of Christ. Those are the words of sacrifice and grace, and they reflect the cross that we're asked to bear. So how do these words become our words in our own life and living? No, we do not have to be martyrs such as these, although our faith may call for it one day. But where can we and where do we suppose that following the path of sacrifice and for God's kingdom is needed today? How might we better understand the conflicts within and without if we look at them through the cross and the sacrifice it asks of us? Will we be ashamed of the sacrifice and the cross because it looks weak? Or will we embrace the path of being a welcoming, healing, and a peace-building people? So the invitation to following Christ is twofold today. One, never be ashamed of the cross and live in such a way that it is divine and not worldly. And secondly... When necessary, choose to look weak in the world, especially when you do so for the sake of others. And may we always count our losses for God's kingdom as a divine triumph in this life and in the life to come. Thanks be to God. Amen.